big question that's been on the table is, how do we love each other? And you say, whatever, not whatever. In fact, we've been hearing from Jesus more than one time that he, he sees this as a top priority. That in the family of God, we would learn. This is the greenhouse right here where you learn to love. Because everybody here is still a sinner, saved by grace, I hope. But still a sinner, start here. Love each other here. Because he understands something about us that sometimes we don't realize. You will never love lost people out in that broken world if you can't even love brothers and sisters here. So this is top priority, he says. Learn to love each other here in the family of God. And today we're going to zoom in on the family of God to help you see something that maybe, just maybe, some of you have not been seeing how you should according to God's word. And it's this. We've been talking about this forever family of God. The the only forever family that will exist. Church forever family. You need to understand this forever family of God is comprised of, always has been, always will be. Singles, married couples, and married couples with children. Always who have equal standing, equal status, equal gifting, and equal worth in the kingdom of God. In other words, make sure you understand, single, married, and married with children. So I'm trying to speak a few things that I don't hear people say it. But I think it's felt and sometimes it's thought. Single, married, and married with children were never intended to be levels of spirituality that indicate spiritual growth and also bring with it some special kind of blessing and favor you have with God now. That it's like this. There are singles who know Jesus. (gasps) Married people who know Jesus. Ooh, married people with children. Dang, you are really a green beret and you're more spiritual and he loves you more. Is marriage good? Are children a blessing? But the Bible does not teach these are levels of spiritual maturity. And as soon as you grow up and put your big girl pants on, or be, you'll get married. And then when you really grow up and love Jesus and understand all of Revelation, you'll have children. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. And so there's what I want to touch on today to help us love each other better and serve God better together. Because that's not what the New Testament teaches. And oh, by the way, it's not what the Old Testament predicted as it pointed towards this new covenant under which we are now living today. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ is not a family of families. If you're not careful, you can say it that way and think that way. And people feel excluded. It's not a family of families. It's a family of singles and married couples and people who have been married but are single again, who have all found the same solution to their biggest problem. And therefore love the same Savior. And therefore are living for the same purpose, the glory of God. And oh, by the way, still struggle with some of the same problems. Single or married, we still have some of the same problems with jobs and suffering and fear and anxieties and covetousness. We're too guilty too often of thinking, oh, but we're so different. We have different set of everything. Not true. Same Savior. Same biggest problem solved. Some of the same struggles and living for the same purpose. The glory of God and the advancement of God's kingdom. And so that's why regardless of marital status here today, we need to be realizing and living out and thinking we have far more in common than different. And so yes, absolutely, God has blessed and it's not wrong to say it that way. Oh my goodness, Grace Fellowship Church has been blessed with lots of young families and children. Amen? But listen to what I'm about to say, because some of you don't know this, because we have two campuses and five services, three here, two in Fort Thomas, and so you may not have ever put it all together, because I hear people say it to me, really? Really? I didn't know. Uh Uh-huh. God has also blessed Grace Fellowship with over 400. 
hundred singles who call Grace Fellowship their family, who serve, who give their money, who pray, and who are helping us accomplish God's call on us in this generation to advance his kingdom. We are, and I use the word by intention, blessed by 400 singles who've chosen to jump in and plug in with us and link arms with us to serve our Savior. Just a few weeks ago, I received an email from a single woman in our church who's plugged in. She's not on the fringe. She is plugged in in all the ways we hope that church members and people who are serious about Grace Fellowship and say, that's my home, would plug in. She's in a small group. She gives money. She serves. She prays. And she sent me this email about a conversation she had recently with one of her closest friends who does not live here, so don't try to guess who it is. You don't know them. Okay? And she said this, Pastor Brad, I wanted to tell you about a conversation I had with one of my closest friends that doesn't live in the area. I was telling her about the singles discussion that we had recently with you as the lead pastor. I put together a group of singles of all ages and gender and situations just to learn from them and say, talk to me about what it's like to be a part of grace. And please know this, as I did that and as the elders met on a Friday night with almost 100 singles, listen, they did not just lay it on us and unload and... It was almost all, 80, 85% just praise. Thank you for the church. We love the church. We love small groups. We love what God's doing. We love, and we had to actually push and say, be honest. Where could we do better? What are things that have been said that we're not even thinking as married people? That's hurtful or, or you, that, that are unintentional. And we listened. So I met with them privately as, as the lead pastor. And then our elders met with about 100 on a, on a Friday night. She was telling her friend about these kind of meetings we were having in our church, Grace Fellowship. And she said, when she said that, her friend said that she had started attending a gay-friendly church in her area. She says, this was certainly news to me. She says, my friend said that she is, quote, confused about all that. I assume she's re- talking about the issue of homosexuality, what she thinks about that but that she's going to that church mainly because at other churches she feels ostracized or strange for being 38 years old and single. But at the gay-friendly church, there are so many, quote, different people that it doesn't matter. She says she feels more included there at the gay-friendly church than other churches. I am so sad about this. And it created a sense of urgency inside me for our church family, Grace Fellowship, to understand that singleness is not something so different that it's similar to a sin like homosexuality. I've been loving the whole We Are Family sermon series. By the way, I've gotten lots of feedback on this series from both married and single who are saying, this has been so good. She said, I have been loving the whole We Are Family sermon series. Thank you and the elders for being more intentional about the singles in our church family. It means so much. So here's what I want to do today. I want to use God's word to just help us all if we need to think a little differently or if we need to let go of some paradigms and things that maybe we aren't even saying out loud, but it's there and it's affecting how we relate to each other, because I want us to love each other well, regardless of marital status, and I want us to serve together well in these last days. So, why don't we use the Bible? Turn with me in your Bibles. Isn't it cool? Every time we seek to address something, I'm so glad I don't say, man, I wish I had a place in the Bible to go to. This is just going to have to be a sermon that's random thoughts about singleness. No. The Bible speaks about this. So go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read a big chunk of it. You find it and then you look back at me because I want to do some preparatory remarks before we actually read it. Find 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to read a big chunk of it, but I want to talk to you first. Before we read it, I want to prepare you because you're going to see Paul get right in the face of our culture and sometimes of our Christian community thinking of way we can be guilty of thinking and he's going to say some things that might just sound outlandish because let's be honest all right if this was not brad bigney but it was the apostle paul here today if the apostle paul was here today some of you would think he was a bit odd wouldn't you i mean he's a big time church leader but he's still single what up is he ugly is he not that smart is he socially awkward 
Are his standards of dating too high and he's too picky? Why is he not married? There has to be a reason he hasn't found a wife, right? Are we not guilty of sometimes thinking that way? Now, certainly, you can see examples where, some, where you might think, oh, I think I know why. I mean, like John the Baptist, you know, beard, locust, honey, nothing but something scratchy and a leather belt. I don't even know that he had pants on. That'll keep you single. <laughs> Very unusual. So he's single. But that's not the case. That's not always the case. And that's the problem with so much of our thinking about singleness today. So I want you to listen to Paul because get this. He is actually going to advocate singleness across the board as an advantage and a good thing. That's right. The same man who lifts up the glories of marriage in Ephesians 5. And he does. And it's right. In this passage is actually going to extol the goodness and advantages of singleness. Now, part of the challenge in 1 Corinthians 7, or the whole book of 1 Corinthians, is that 1 Corinthians is a letter where Paul is writing to the Christians at the city in Corinth, answering a letter they wrote him. They wrote him a letter with a bunch of questions, and now he's answering. And you'll know this because there's times throughout the book of Corinthians where he says, now concerning, now concerning, now about. He's answering questions. So in a sense, we're listening to one side of a conversation. We don't have the letter they wrote him. We don't know what they were asking, but we can see him answering. So there's some challenges, but it's not like we can't learn anything. And let me also note this. Don't push this whole thing off the table and say, oh, well, Paul was single. Of course he would talk this way. This is the inspired word of God. People can be guilty of that on gender also today just because the Bible doesn't talk how the world talks anymore. They can say, oh, all that stuff about gender distinctions with husband and wife and men and women, that was Paul and he, he's a, he, he hates women. No, it's the inspired word of God. So the same thing here. This is not Paul allowing his personal preferences as a single to creep in word of God all right you ready now aren't you excited one more thing that's different let's just make it a different kind of Sunday I am going to read from the ESV some of you are so excited I know but trust me I'm going back I'm not staying there I'm going back but this week I do believe the ESV is the most clear on this chapter. So I'm choosing to read from the ESV. Here we go. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman, her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. He's talking about sexual intimacy and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. He's talking about sexually. So it's a whole nother sermon, and it'd be a good one. But related to our recent marriage conference, I didn't do a whole talk on sex. But right here is the passage that says, folks, if you're here and you're married, sexual intimacy is supposed to be frequent often the norm and it's an exception when you're not instead of like oh my goodness it's a holiday or you know once in a blue moon we no 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 it's it's normative that you're sexually intimate with each other in fact the only time you shouldn't be is by agreement for a period of time enough said i could go on but so that's why it says in verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried. Like you've never been married. You're single and you've never been married. And the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. For the sake of time, jump to verse 25. Now, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. See what's going on? He's answering questions. Now concerning and now concerning. Betrothed is just a biblical word 
that described their engagement. It was a much more intense engagement period, like on steroids, and it was much more serious even than what we have going on. That's what betrothal was. You're not married, but it's coming, and you've committed to each other, and families are making preparation. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. He's saying Jesus never addressed this, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Now he's going to say that two or three times to make sure you don't hear what I'm not saying. It is not a sin to get married. It is not a sin to desire to be married. But he is lifting up the goodness and advantages of single. See, sometimes we act like, oh, but it is a sin to be single. Verse 28. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. He's not saying if you're married, neglect your spouse. Forget you even have one. If you have a job, don't show up. It's a perspective. He's saying these are the end times. These are the final days. Don't just get lost in your marriage and your job and the things of this world. Live for what matters most in the midst of your marriage and your job and these things. For the present form of this world is passing away. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And please note, he's not saying that's a sinful anxiousness. It's appropriate. If you're married, you have things to think about related to your marriage. And it's right. You should be thinking about your spouse. You should want to please them. It's just saying, when you're married, you've got this whole area of concern that you don't have when you're single. Verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. There it is again. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and is determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That means marry another Christian. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Here's what I know. There is no way I'm going to answer all the questions that might be shooting around in your mind now. I may have raised more questions than I'm going to answer. So just let me state all I hope to do. From this passage, I simply want to show you what I think singles and married share in common in the family of God. Because I think too often we're focused on the differences. Are there differences? Sure. But I want you to hear today from God's word, the differences are not as great and not as important as what we share in common. By any by even, no way. We are more alike than different. That's what we want to come away from God's word with today. So let me show you some of the ways. Number one, number one, both singleness and marriage are good. Both singleness and marriage are good. That's what Paul's telling us in 1 Corinthians 7. And it seems like a simple statement unless you've been reading your Old Testament. Because if you've been reading your Old Testament under the Old Covenant, then... 
You won't find a verse like that in the Old Testament. It was all about biological families and producing physical babies. That's what it was all about to the point that it was actually considered a curse. Barrenness was considered a curse. Oh my goodness, under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, you needed to get married and have babies and have a family. Otherwise, it was like, ooh, 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 ooh. You don't see the New Testament talking that way. Look at verse 8 again in 1 Corinthians 7. To the unmarried, never been married, and the widows, I say that it is, say the word. Say it louder. Good for them to remain single as I am. You won't find anything like that in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament did predict the day that would be coming that is the day we now live in, where it would be a different deal. Go to Isaiah chapter 53, one of the greatest chapters on the death of Jesus Christ and what he did for us to solve our biggest problem. But I'm going to show you something that maybe you never noticed is right there in that same chapter that addresses what we're talking about. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, jump in at verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Oh, wonderful. But have you ever noticed verse 10? Jump down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring This is why I chose ESV. The New King James says seed. I think this is more clear. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus ever took on flesh and came to this earth and died for us, is telling us something very significant. I want you to lock in on a phrase in the middle of verse 10. Five words. He shall see his offspring. Talking about Jesus. In other words, when Jesus dies as an offering for guilt, and he did, because we're now on this side of the cross looking back. Isaiah was looking 600 years into the future saying, this is what's going to happen. We now look back. It happened. He died. He rose again. When Jesus died as an offering for guilt and rose again to prolong His days, his death and resurrection, Isaiah was predicting, would produce, would produce many children, even though he was never married. He shall see his offspring. Means that the new people of God, formed by Jesus, under the new covenant, will not be formed by physical procreation like they were in the Old Testament, with the physical nation called Israel. But by the death and resurrection of Jesus, spiritual children will be birthed from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. He shall see his offspring as a phrase that sets the stage for the new covenant of grace that will advance God's kingdom and multiply God's people, not through physical procreation by birthing babies, but through spiritual regeneration by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the spirit of Christ moving through our world today. That's why you don't find anywhere, again, please, you don't need to email me, please don't tell me I hate marriage and I hate children and I don't, I don't. But you won't find any place in the New Testament where it says, get married. If you really love Jesus, do it. And then have children and have a bunch of children. That's when you're really blessed and that's when you really advance God's kingdom. Are children a blessing? Absolutely. But he doesn't say that's how we're going to advance God's kingdom. That's how we're going to multiply people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. You don't find that in the New Testament. So here's what this means. Here's the takeaway. If you say, so what's your point? Here's the point, family of God. Whether you're single or married here today, you all 
have the equal same opportunity and capacity and gifting and spirit of Christ to get in on what God is doing in our world today that is far greater than biological families birthing physical babies. You're not second class. And probably no one here, I hope, has walked up to you and said that, but it's felt. I think it's felt. You are not second class and we're not waiting for you to grow up. There's no way there can be a spiritual depth to you and you could really know Jesus and you could have gifts that you can use. That's not true. New Testament never says single, married, married with children are levels of spiritual maturity and growth that we're all supposed to move through if you want to see God use you. But we're not done here. That's not it. This understanding explains why you see what you do in in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Look what it says in Isaiah 54, 1. This was radical. This was still in a day of old covenant thinking. And look what he says. This was when barrenness was a curse. It was considered a curse. Isaiah 54, 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Under the old covenant, Old Testament, barrenness was a curse. But now he says, you can be unmarried, you can be childless, and you can shout for joy. You can sing because your joy and your sense of blessing is not tied to babies or marriage. It's tied to God's kingdom and God working and using you to be a spiritual mother or father. You can have offspring. As you serve God and live for him. That God is using you to be a part of what he's doing in our world today. Oh, but there's more. Even Jesus himself. If we had time, you could go to Isaiah 56 where he says something similar about eunuchs that are more blessed than what the blessing is of having sons and daughters. He said, you got a better blessing than sons and daughters. He comes right out and says it. But Jesus himself in front of a crowd. I love it when Jesus addresses something in front of a crowd Because he'll hear someone say something that shows conventional thinking. And he'll take that opportunity to kind of zing. Sometimes he'll tell a whole story. That's a parable. Sometimes he'll just fire back. There was a a time in Luke 11 where he was moving through the crowd. And a woman yelled out exactly what conventional thinking, thinking was. Oh, blessed is the womb that carried you and the breast upon which you nursed. That was it in the day. Like, yeah. Woo. Jesus didn't say, you're right. My mama's the most blessed, most important thing. Uh-uh. He actually says in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, he turns and says, more than that. So is there a blessing there? Yes. But he takes it up a notch and says, more than that, woman. More than that. Let me tell you what it's about now that I have come and the kingdom is moving forward more than that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Whenever you see in the New Testament, keep it, it means you don't just sit there and hear it. You start to put it into action. You start to live it out. You start to share it with others. You start to say, God, use me to become a part of what these verses are saying. More than that, more than having babies, more than, which is another good place for us to realize we shouldn't worship Mary. Catholic Church gets it wrong when they worship Mary. She was a wonderful example of humility and obedience and trusting God and living by faith. Yes, yes, yes. But Jesus moves it past and actually says, there are greater blessings than the mother of God herself. Here's who's most blessed. Every obedient Christian adopted son or daughter, whether single or married, who hears God's word And keeps it and seeks to live out and obey and impact our world. More than that. More than that. More than that. And so the progression from the Old Testament to the New Testament, New Covenant, is that both singleness and marriage are now good. Because both can equally get in on what God is doing and both equally are adopted sons or daughters with full inheritance and full measure of the Holy Spirit, full everything. There's not a two-tiered system in the family of God. 
Tim Keller, quoting Stanley Harwas, argues this. Christianity was the first religion that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. You need to understand there were a lot of things about Christianity that was like, oh, radically different. The value of women not being treated or considered property and equal standing before God. The way you talk to husbands to live with them in an understanding way and show honor. And so many things about Christianity was radically different. And this is one of them also. Christianity was the first religion that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. He writes, quote, One clear difference between Christianity and Judaism. I appreciate Christians who get real excited about the similarities between us and Judaism in the Old Testament. And if you want to meet and do a Seder and all that, great. But I hope you will always be equally excited about there are some amazing distinctions between Christianity and Judaism. That's why I don't continually want to go back and find, well, let's do what they were doing. It's a new covenant. And one of the distinctions was Judaism. Listen, it is all about family, marriage, and make babies. And heritage and genealogies. That is not what you see in the New Testament with Christianity. Clear difference between Christianity and Judaism is the former's entertainment of the idea of singleness as a paradigm way of life for its followers. Now, hold on. Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ, and Christianity's leading theologian, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the New Testament letters, were both single their entire lives. Single adults cannot be seen as somehow less fully formed or realized human beings. Paul's assessment in 1 Corinthians 7 is that singleness is a good condition, blessed by God. And in many circumstances, it's actually better than marriage. As a result of this revolutionary attitude, the early church did not pressure people to marry, as we can see in Paul's letter. If you've lost sight of it as you're reading the Bible, folks, think of all the single men and women that God's used greatly to advance his kingdom. John the Baptist, Paul, Silas, Dr. Luke, Titus, Lydia, Phoebe, Philip's four unmarried daughters, and Jesus, just to name a few. And then if you start reading church history, notice God has been working in amazing ways to advance his kingdom you will find the names of single men and women all throughout church history who in many cases risked the most, loved the most, sacrificed the most, and some of it sometimes exactly because of what you see in 1 Corinthians 7. They're freed up from the distractions of marriage and home and family and in some ways are able. Don't hear me giving everybody who's married a grace card. Let's let the singles do all the risky stuff. Yeah, you're not married. You don't have kids. Go on in there. We'll pray for you. Not, but in some ways, you can read church history and see single men and women who've laid down their lives for the advancement of the gospel and have been less divided and less distracted and less encumbered by the joys and the blessing of marriage and children. So we need to honor these brothers and sisters and not have this second class mentality or when you grow up or when you get married or when you really... Number two, both singleness and marriage portray the gospel and our ultimate relationship with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm afraid has happened, and I'll I'll own it. As I got excited from Scripture about how Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 tell us, oh, you know what? This thing called marriage, husbands love your wives, wives respect and submit and compliment and follow. He gives you the nuts and bolts. And then in verse 31 and 32, he says, oh my goodness, but I speak to you about a profound mystery. I am referring to Christ and the church. And so I readily here will say, oh, your marriage was meant to be a billboard that puts on display the love of Christ and the church. Have you ever heard me say that? Is that right? Here's what the unintended consequences I think have been. I never meant to, and I don't think the scriptures meant to say, and you singles, can't even be a billboard. You're lucky to be a postcard. You, you can't even do this until you're married. You can't put on display the love of Christ. No, 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 no. 
I believe Paul was speaking to married couples to guard them from getting lost in marriage. Can you get lost in marriage? There's so much to think about and work on. It's just us and our marriage. And then you add kids. It's like, oh my goodness. He wanted to lift your heads to say, hang on. Marriage was always designed to be about something bigger than just your marriage. Keep that in mind as you seek to love and respect each other and live it out. But folks, go to 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 2 and 3. Go. Some of you are just looking at me. Go there. Like in your Bible. It's a book in the Bible. Comes right after 1 Corinthians. I want to show you that every believer. Every believer is called to be a billboard. That puts on display the love of Christ. And his bride. The church. And we're his bride. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 2 and 3. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you. There's the same word that's in 1 Corinthians 7 referring to a human relationship. Paul is saying, I betrothed you. He's speaking to the whole church, singles, married, single again. You are engaged, he says. I pointed you to Jesus and and led you to a savior. You are engaged to Jesus Christ. I betrothed you to one husband. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Every believer is called into a relationship where Christ is our bridegroom husband and we're his bride. You put that on display by the way you love him and live for him. And then, oh, by the way, if God leads you into marriage, make sure your marriage doesn't just simply become all about you and you lose sight of where you were supposed to be when you were single, married to Christ, engaged to Christ, and it's still what it's about now as you're married. In fact, that word sincere, right there in 2 Corinthians 11, it's a beautiful Greek word, haplotes, that literally means unmixed or Single-hearted. Now I'm going to say something that I hope will encourage singles. And I don't mean it to denigrate married people. But folks, here's why Paul's talking this way in 1 Corinthians 7. In a real sense, singles can have an advantage over married couples. With the ability to lead the way for us. And what it looks like to, I mean, be devoted to, single-hearted exclusively committed to Jesus Christ. Finding your satisfaction in him, finding your worth in him and your identity in him. That's why Paul talks the way he does in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32 to 35. He's not saying marriage is bad, but he just kept saying the married man is anxious about how to please his Wife and should be. The married woman has all kinds of thoughts and concerns about how to run her home and please her husband. And if you add children, all the more so. It doesn't give us a grace card, but I watched my wife. I've been married 31 years, five kids. Oh my goodness, would it not be fair to admit it is a huge challenge to be married and have children and still find time to meet with your lover, Jesus Don't hear me saying, and you singles can meet all day because you don't even work jobs, you just drink. No, that's not what I'm saying. You are busy. You have stressful jobs. You suffer. You face some of the same things we do. But this is off the table. That's why it says you don't have to be anxious about how to please a husband or a wife or kids. And that's why it says, I'm telling you this so that your undivided devotion and attention could be placed On your husband, Jesus. Number three, both singles and married should learn from each other, love each other, and serve God together in the same forever family. Can we as married couples learn from our brothers and sisters that are single? Absolutely. But if we're not careful, sometimes I feel that it's, no one says it, but it's out there like, all right, there's not really anything we can learn from them. But boy, if they get in our small groups, they can certainly learn from us because we're married. That's unfortunate. We shouldn't think that way. Where a single brother or sister is in their walk with the Lord might be way ahead of you, married man or woman. They may have suffered as a single, but just like 2 Corinthians 1 says, when you've been comforted, you're able to comfort 
anyone who's in any trouble, could a single who's never understood the suffering in marriage still encourage you through a suffering trial? Yes. Because suffering is suffering. The grace of God is the grace of God. The word of God is the word of God. And we can learn from each other and benefit from each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, love him. He's dead. He was a great guy. And I believe he was engaged to be married and never made it to the altar because his life was cut short by the Nazis who imprisoned him because he was one of the few German pastors that stood up and said, this is not right. This is not right. And they put him in prison. And then he was hung just days before the allies freed that that prison and let everybody go. But as a single man sitting in a prison who was single-hearted in his devotion to Jesus, I believe he wrote what is the masterpiece about biblical community and fellowship with each other. I want to read you a portion of it. I've read this book, little book three times over the last 10 years. It is fantastic. Listen to what he says. Many people... Seek fellowship because they are afraid to be alone. Because they cannot stand loneliness. They are driven to seek the company of other people. There are Christians too who cannot endure being alone. Who have had some bad experiences with themselves. Who hope that they will gain some help in association with others. They are generally disappointed. And here's what he means. If you come in needing too much, you know what I mean? My hands are just out. Everyone needs to fix me, heal me, help me, fill up my love cup. You'll, you'll be disappointed. Because there's a bunch of broken, sinful people, people here. If you come in needing too much and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that's strong enough that it's meeting your deepest needs, it'll destroy community. He says, the person who comes into a fellowship because he's running away from himself is misusing it for the sake of diversion. No matter how spiritual this diversion may appear, he's really not seeking community at all, but only distraction, which will allow him to forget his loneliness for a brief time. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. He will only do harm to himself and to the community. Alone you stood before God when he called you. Alone you had to answer that call. Alone you had to struggle and pray. And alone you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape from yourself for God has singled you out. If you refuse to be alone, you are rejecting Christ's call to you. And you can have no part in the community of those who are called. If you stop there, that would be way out of balance. He doesn't. So he's not saying don't be a part of community. He's saying don't come in and you're so weak in your relationship with Jesus, you're expecting the biblical community to do more than it can do. Because listen to what he says next. But the reverse is also true. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. It's both. But God never intended for marriage or the church or Christian fellowship to replace your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's paramount. Paramount. Oh my goodness. We can learn from each other. I've been leading a small group for 21 years now. It's not just married couples that I've learned from and it's broken my heart when we birth. Our hearts, Vicky and I, have been just as broken over singles that we've birthed. And we're like, oh my goodness. Here, here's a little secret. Some of the single people that have been in our group have been some of our favorite people. Some married people, not so much. And I'm glad they're now in your group, blessing your socks off. I mean, there have been single men and women that are like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, what I'm learning from them. Um, we've had several that as they come into the room, they just bring with them Jesus and love and thinking and wrestling. And it's been so good. You don't have to be married to have that. And as a married man, I can benefit from that. Some of my favorite conversations that have just been so enriching have, have taken place with my friend Joel on my patio with a glass of red wine. But if that bothers you, strike that statement. (laughs) 
And I asked him if he would speak to our church family about how we can appreciate each other and benefit from each other and love each other better. Listen to what Joel said. My name is Joel Briggs. Um, I've been part of the Grace Fellowship Church family since 2014, late 2014. Um, I've been a believer since the summer of 2009. Every single within the Church of Christ um, is, is going to have their own unique story as to how they found themselves um, as a single. And, and as singles, our identity is, is repeatedly defined as being uh, without, as, as lacking something, um, as being familyless. Um, we're essentially identified as alone. Um, and, and that's hard. That's, that's, that's a difficult, that's, that's very difficult. Um, it's hard to hear Christians say, um, you're all alone, right? Or uh, you'll understand someday when you have a family. Or um, you don't have a family yet, do you? But, but in actuality, I do. I, I do have a family. My family is, is the church. Um, my family is you. That's an encouragement because some of us won't have a family, a biological family. Some of us won't get married. But we still have family. Um, this is a difficult reality at the same time because um, many Christian nuclear family units um, are, are, are simply too busy to, to include Christian brothers and sisters who, um, who, are, who are not related to them. You know, ballet, piano, soccer, peewee football, uh, even even Netflix and the Bengals game um, are things that take up a lot of time in people's lives. Um, people are, are just so busy, um, and, and that's understandable. Um, but I think many of our lonely Christian brothers and sisters um, would be more than honored to be to be included um, in, in, in some of those daily or even weekly events. Um, we, we have this, this precious blessing from the Holy Spirit that when we're sharing life in close proximity with other believers, um, He really does a sanctifying work in us. Um, and even the mundane moments of, of family life can become really sacred grounds for sharpening and connecting in our Lord. Did you hear what he said? We have this precious blessing by the Holy Spirit that when we're in close proximity to each other, and that includes married, single, he does a sanctifying work in us. I hope you understand that sanctifying work that he does happens just as easily and equally and often through a single brother and sister, even if you're married, than another married couple. And did you hear what he said? You don't need to think, clear the calendar. Where in the world can we just clean the whole house, have a special night and a dinner and have some? Just think in terms of what are you already doing and ask them to join you at the zoo or at a Reds game or whatever you're doing, and say, and sometimes they'll say no, sometimes they'll say yes, but just think in terms of just ask them, hey, would you, would you want to come over? We're all going to, and you keep doing what you might be doing as a family, but include them, invite them. Last point, both singleness and marriage share the same ultimate purpose, the glory of God. Glory of, you're still people created for his glory, Isaiah 47, whether single or married. For his glory. And so the question will only be at the end of the day as we stand before him. Not, now did you ever get married and have children and really make an impact for the kingdom? It will be, did you maximize as well as you could have your singleness or your marriage? We're all going to be accountable. And if you're single, God may have marriage in your future. 
But until that becomes evident, maximize your singleness. If you're married today, don't get lost in your marriage and your family. Maximize your marriage for the glory of God. There will be rewards, unique rewards for singles who maximized their singleness for the glory of God. There will be unique rewards for married couples who didn't get lost in marriage and child rearing and maximized their marriage for the glory of God. Now, as I close, I want to give a couple of disclaimers that I hope will maybe reduce some of all the emails I would get this week. Because I know this was different. This might have been new. and uh, So I prayed really hard. I've tried to be really careful and stay to my notes and only say what I meant to say. But let me just say something. I know I'm a sinner. There. That explains a lot of things I do. Okay? I know I'm a sinner. Secondly, I know that I'm a less than perfect communicator. And there may be things that weren't said as well as I hoped they would be. And it wasn't what I thought I said, what you heard in the same thing. And I know that I may have even offended both some singles and some marriage by what wasn't said or left unanswered or the tone. But please know, it was not my intent to denigrate marriage and children and child rearing. But to lift how we view and appreciate and love our single brothers and sisters to the place, not that I and the elders want it to be, but to the place that God's word has it so that we can love each other better, respect each other better, that if you're here and you're single or single again, you don't need to constantly think I'm second class and I'm, you are fully vested in the family of God, gifted, adopted, and God wants to use you and us to link arms together and serve him till he comes. So after I pray, thank you for that. Now please know it also doesn't mean if you want to get married, now you have to feel embarrassed. Like, I actually still want to get married. Is that bad? Will anyone in my small group pray for me about that? Or will they say, maximize your singleness, girl? It's not wrong to want to, Okay. But after I pray, I want us to stand and we're going to sing a song together that has nothing to do with your status of single or married and everything to do with who our Savior is, who is the greatest treasure for all of us. It's what we share in common that's far greater than any differences. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for, again, a good, clear, encouraging, clarifying word about this issue so that our family can love each other and push out into a dark world to reach them for Christ. Thank you for what we share in common. In Jesus' name, amen.